a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Yes, indeed. Once again, here I stand, shovel in hand, ready to shovel truth and light in the direction of anybody who's looking for such things. Hey, I'm glad you're part of my audience today. Got some great audience, great audience, great sponsors and great audience. But it's the sponsors who uh, help to keep the lights on here and make it possible for me to do what I'm doing. They include Govern Your Crypto, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and DixieChiropractic.com. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive right into what uh, may be the most controversial topic of the week because it has to do with vaccines. Oh, I know. That's the that's like the third rail. You got to be so careful in, in even mentioning such a thing, because that's what all the algorithms are targeted towards. If somebody sees a word, oh, that's a little fact checker say we don't want people thinking that. And there's probably more to it. So let's talk for a minute, though, about some of the data that Pfizer grudgingly released. And I, I'll admit, I've only followed this on the periphery, so this has not been the deep dive that I've been digging into every single day. But if the data that I'm seeing is correct, and if, if what I'm seeing is, well, if it's indicative of some of the damage done, we've got a real problem. And in particular, I'm, I'm concerned, I saw this yesterday, this is from the Pfizer report, and it's a description of uh, adverse event reports. Pfizer vaxxed 238 pregnant women. Only one of those women gave birth. And the person who posted this says, look, now we, now we know why they wanted to keep the data hidden for 75 years. So, I mean, that sounds pretty damning, you know, and I, I'm not going to pretend it. That's the whole story right there. But does that not add at least another layer of questions as to, okay, how safely was this uh, vaccine tested? The answer is it really wasn't tested. And because of that, maybe all of that official pressure, which started out as just, you know, uh, asking, hey, would you please consider, hey, I'll bribe you. Would you like 50 bucks? Would you like a slice of pizza? You know, all of the things. Would you like to keep your job? Partner, take the shot. You know, I mean, it just, it morphed into such incredible coercion so quickly. And yet, if you're following that data, you know that there are some very serious questions that have been raised. But here's one that, that comes up, and, and this is one I'd like to explore, and that is, do the Pfizer data dumps actually mean anything? Kit Knightley, writing for OffGuardian.org, says the latest batch of Pfizer's COVID, COVID vaccine files just dropped. 80,000 pages of patient files and trial data and so on and so on. In fact, there's a link. You can click on it and read them all for yourself. All 80,000 pages. <clears throat> Don't read anything less or... I'll know you're not serious. I'm kidding. But Kit Knightley says, the question is, do they really tell us anything we don't already know? Now, the big revelation doing the rounds at the minute is that the vaccines were never trialed with. 
and were specifically not recommended for pregnant women. But this new information, well, when government started recommending the COVID vaccine to pregnant women in the summer of 2021, everybody who had been paying attention knew that position was not backed up by any data at all. In fact, OffGuardian.org got temporarily banned from Twitter for pointing this out. Now, more broadly speaking, of course the vaccines were never tested on pregnant women because they were never properly tested on anybody. It takes 10 years to safely produce and trial a vaccine, not 18 months. And what trials they claim to have done in that year and a half were a complete sham. Kit Knightley says, in a way, the not recommended for pregnant women disclosure is actually good for Pfizer. And behind a facade of legally mandated, uh, being legally mandated to publish these files, now it's become public knowledge that Pfizer allegedly told people, don't give this vaccine to pregnant women. But many countries did it anyway. This shifts the blame and the potential legal liability away from Pfizer and onto the governments in question. So a good example of how forced disclosure can be used to reinforce and direct a narrative through a pretense of reluctance. Going further, shouldn't we be asking, can we trust anything in these documents at all? In other words, just because Pfizer has apparently been legally forced to release them, that doesn't mean they're important, it doesn't mean they're relevant, it doesn't even mean that they're real. Who's verifying the documents? Who's auditing Pfizer to make sure they release everything? the U.S. government or some other government or agency? And then the question is, do you trust them? See, the real damning documents, Kit Knightley says, if such ever existed, have likely been shredded, burned, and buried in 20 feet of concrete now. And that doesn't matter. Here's why. Because we already know everything we will ever need to know about these COVID, in quotation marks, vaccines. Number one, they were not subject to proper long-term testing. Number two, they have totally unknown long-term side effects. Number three, they allegedly treat a disease with a 99.85% survival rate. Number four, they don't prevent infection. Number five, they don't prevent transmission. And finally, number six, the manufacturers are legally protected from being sued in the event They kill you. So the point here is, Pfizer can release all the documents they want. Nothing will change these facts, but only distract from them. I think that's probably a fair way to approach this. Um, Again, it's... I, I'm not, uh, you know, a virologist. I, I I don't understand all the workings of vaccines, and I'm not going to pretend to. But I'll tell you what, I'm a pretty good expert on is uh, understanding where my rights begin and how to go about asserting those rights. And when someone is trying to force a medical intervention on me, I don't care how well intended, my right to say no or yes supersedes their right to do whatever is necessary to protect the public, especially in a disease that has, what was it again, a 98 Nope, let's try that again. 99.85% survival rate. Remember, that's among people who catch it. Something has felt so off about this from the the very beginning. 
And it started with the masks and it started with the lockdowns. And then when the vaccines came along, and by the way, there's still plenty of pressure. Well, you know, if you haven't been vaxxed, everybody get out there and, and get it right now. Now, I know people who've had the vax who have been absolutely fine. And I also know a lot of people who haven't had the vax who've been absolutely fine. And I know people with the vax who've come down with COVID and recovered from it. I know people with the vax who, or without the vax who've also caught COVID and recovered from it. But the big looming question in my mind always comes back to, by what moral authority does government or some regulatory bureaucracy, or uh, some, some business bureaucracy for that matter, or even some private individual, by what moral authority can they claim the right to use coercion to get someone else to, to stick a needle in them? See, and I'm, I know I'm drawing a hard line here, and I'm, I'm with a lot of other people who have as well, but really that's what it comes down to. You either have bodily autonomy or you do not. And it's, isn't it funny? We've, we suddenly rediscovered bodily autonomy all of a sudden. And most of the people who are screaming loudest about how, it's my body, it's my choice. <laughs> These are the same people who are saying, take the shot. <laughs> Easy there, Alec Baldwin. Well, we'll get around to the shot discussion here in a minute. But I'll have this link here from Kit Knightley's uh, piece in Off Guardian. I would encourage you to take a look at it. Again, there is a link to the 80,000 pages of Pfizer patient files and trial data and so on. I don't have the time or actually the, the technical knowledge to fully understand and go through them one by one. But just remember, we you don't have to be you know capable of analyzing every single page to know that these things weren't subject to long-term testing. They, there's no idea what the long-term side effects are going to be. Although we do seem to have a strange strange number of blood clots and otherwise healthy people suddenly dropping dead or dying suddenly for no reason at all. We know for a fact that COVID is very survivable for most people, 99% plus of the people who catch it. And we also know that uh, it doesn't the vaccine doesn't present, prevent infection, it doesn't prevent transmission. And yet the manufacturers have legal protection that uh, you and I don't have recourse if, for some reason, we die or are otherwise harmed. I mean, it's enough to get people asking some questions. At least I hope it's enough to get them asking some very basic questions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Oh, I've got so much fun and games ahead of us. Before I go there, though, let me start by thanking LifesavingFood.com for being one of my sponsors. Yes, we're talking about food storage as well as other preparedness and survival items. I know that it's. this is a time where there's <clears throat> a great deal of uncertainty and people are like, oh, come on, quit playing on my fears. Don't make me scared of whatever's coming. I don't know what's coming, but I see a lot of things forming up to, at the very least, make things complicated and probably quite difficult for a lot of us, if not most of us, in the near-term future. And part of it has to do with fallout from the lockdowns. Part of it has to do with choke points in, in the supply chains and 
Right now, it looks like there is a food shortage that is being engineered, and we're all going to get real informed about it in another few months. Maybe consider having a few things on hand. Maybe consider having a lot of things on hand. Life-saving food is there to help you. They'll ship it right to your door. But that window of opportunity, it's closing. And there's going to come a point where it's going to slam shut when everybody realizes, holy cow, we're in trouble. Please be someone who takes action before that time. Click on the link I provide in my show notes. They can take it from there. Well, here's another take on uh, the likely overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. It's from El Gato Malo. And uh, El Gato Malo says it's time to row, row, row the court out of the business of determining societal mores and morality. thought this was a good take. El Gato Malo says, I promised you more controversy. Well, here it is. If this makes you mad, just remember... Reasonable people can disagree and still be friend, still be friends rather. All ideas can be discussed, and any idea that cannot is a problem in and of itself, and it's certainly not going to get solved. The third rail is live, dinner is served, and I like this warning. And this is an unsafe space. Now, El Gato Malo actually has this uh, slide. This is Gato's third rail diner, and the truth will will get you fleas. Okay, well, let's dive right in. Elgato Malo says, as you likely heard, a draft of the majority opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court on overturning Roe v. Wade has leaked. The stakes on this are very high, and abortion is one of the most loaded topics in U.S. politics. It's going to be an epic round of high-hypocrisy jersey changes and instant moral inversions of whose body is whose choice. The misrepresentation and recrimination will get aggressive to the point of frantic fabulism. The salience of the matter, what happened, what actually, what anything actually means, and basic discernment will all go begging. In other words, this is going to be a mess. And the simple fact is that few here even know the simple facts, much less the complex contexts. So, for instance, here's a, here's a tweet from Alexandra de Sanctis Mar. It says, it's, it's in response to a New York Times article, progressive lawmakers across Europe expressed concerns and surprise that the U.S. Supreme Court had privately voted to strike down Roe v. Wade. It would be a terrible regression for American women, one French senator said. Alexandra de Sanctis Mara responds saying, 39 of the 42 European countries that allow elective abortion permit it only in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Huh, did you know that? Well, now you do. And Elgato Malo says, this is why you can't trust any of these people with choices of this convolution and magnitude. They're politicians and they're pundits. What did you expect? Theirs is the predictable and inevitable twaddle and self-contradiction of those who reason not from precepts or from ideals, but from positions for which they then make up tactical pretext. If we want solutions instead of slap fights, well, we need to take this upon ourselves. So rather than become lost in the rapid fire, uh, rapid side shifting of the food fight, we should keep sight of the bigger picture, and that requires acknowledging something. You ready for this? The Alito opinion is actually quite a good decision. In fact, there's a link. You can read it in its entirety. But El Gato Malo says, let's be very clear. I say this not to take a position on abortion. I say this to take a position on the role of the judiciary, and that's a topic we really do need to address. I say this because 
Roe v. Wade was an awful decision. This was not because of its outcome, over which people can and do disagree and with reason, but because the logic that underpinned it was shoddy and overreaching. And this faulty framing has left an issue of great import in a sort of limbo for generations. So for this reason, I've long said that anyone who is truly pro-choice should want to overturn Roe. It's just a terrible way to establish the boundaries and framework around such a choice. And Elgato Malo says, I am far from alone in this. Even the much-vaunted lioness of the left, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was an outspoken critic of Roe, despite, of course, being strongly pro-choice. She would have preferred that abortion rights be secured more gradually in a process that included state legislatures and the courts. Ginsburg also was troubled that the focus on Roe was on a right to privacy rather than women's rights. Ginsburg said, Roe isn't really about the woman's choice, is it? It's about the doctor's freedom to practice. It wasn't woman-centered. It was physician-centered. So Elgato Malo says the whole underpinning of the purported right enumerated by Roe is honestly something of a nonsense. The ruling in effect created from whole cloth a positive right to abortion nowhere in evidence in the Constitution by framing it as a sort of far-flung privacy right around doctor-patient interaction, a right clearly trampled in many other places, particularly of late, and one not afforded to other professions. Not only did that constitute the sort of activist court overreach that renders justices constitutional reframers come philosopher kings, but it's an inept framing of the right to boot and it also finds severe dissonance with the rest of the negative rights-based structure that underpins a republic. So it's not as though making a crime private renders it non-criminal. If a doctor helped a mother kill a three-year-old, would anyone accept this rationale? So a couple of quick quotes here. This right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action as we feel it is, or in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether to terminate her pregnancy. This is from Roe, the Roe decision. And also, this quote, The court reasoned that outlawing abortions would infringe a pregnant woman's right to privacy for several reasons. Having unwanted children may force upon the woman a distressful life and future. It may bring imminent psychological harm. Caring for the child may tax the mother's physical and mental health, and because there may be distress for all concerned associated with the unwanted child. End quote. Now, Elgato Malo says, look, this bad, uneasy elucidation has been political pay dirt for 50 years. It's an endless mess, hopelessly insecure, and inconsistent with 30 other areas of law and conscience. So whichever side of the issue you're on, this ruling feels precarious. Because the purported logic of it is nonsense, and it requires some sort of corkscrew reasoning kabuki dance to follow and implement. Both parties love that. The fact that this issue is eternally unstable and could turn on a dime, as perhaps it just did, is a feature. It's not a bug. So watch the current rage and the outlandish exaggeration. This one always brings every bat in the belfry down from the rafters. It's evergreen fundraising fodder and get-out-the-vote gold. So Roe is an awful set of nonsensical and torturous reasoning that sets up ill-established competing interests and never defines any of its key terms. 
It was a cowardly attempt to reach a desired conclusion while not meaningful resolving the matter, meaningfully resolving the matter. Now, whatever your take is on this contentious issue, Elgato Malo says, we have long deserved better. Since 1973, this issue has been deliberately left unsettled and uncertain because it suits the political ends of both parties. So why create a real solution when there's so much ongoing benefit that could be derived from a bad one? We're going to come back and finish up this article from uh, El Gato Malo, including what can we do about it? I hope you'll click on the link and, and check out the whole article because there are a number of very useful links also contained within it. You can find it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. These are your go-to people if you are in need of a mortgage, if you are in need of a, a VA loan, maybe a reverse mortgage or even a traditional mortgage, talk to Heather. Whether your uh, loan is needed in Utah or Idaho, she is there to help you along with her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Her phone number is 435-703-4522. You'll also find an email link provided in my show notes under the sponsors section. Just click on Heather Turner Team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So let's talk for just a moment about uh, how we have deserved better in terms of the whole Roe v. Wade decision. I, I know that's it's a hugely contentious issue, but I really enjoy El Gato Malo's take on this. And I have a link to the uh, Boricuato, how does it say it? Boricuagato, Boricuagato, Substack. Anyway, you'll find the link in my show notes. And, and th- they point out here, The abortion issue has been deliberately left unsettled since 1973. And the political parties, man, they know they can can rally their troops. In fact, there's a lot of speculation. This may be what's actually happening. This is to get the left mobilized for the midterms where it looks like they were getting ready to take a shellacking. This is one of those topics that will get people on their feet and out, you know, evangelizing. And as ever... You know, this this is a case where a real solution would settle the issue or at least tamp down some of the the crazy emotion. But the but leaving a bad solution in place just creates more political opportunity, more political drama. And as El Gato, El, El Gato Malo points out, as ever, we the people get held hostage by the extremist arms of both parties and their corner case competition to hurl moral opprobrium and absolutes because, oh, how the donor money rolls in. But here's the truth of the matter. Most of us don't live there. Most live somewhere in the middle. This is really not all that controversial, but try saying that and see what happens. Here's a tweet from Colin Wright. You know, it's possible to be pro-choice up to a certain point and pro-life beyond a certain point. Pro-choice versus pro-life is a false is a false binary. There, I'm sure that fixes everything, and the responses to this will all be calm and reasonable. <laughs> yes, of course, on Twitter they certainly will. Now, amusingly, this is actually quite similar to what the trimester system in Roe lays out as well. 
as the widespread European solution. One might think saying so would be somewhat centrist in the Overton window. And mostly, he says, I suspect it is, but the folks on the fringes will never let centrist dialogue occur. So we have no ability to speak calmly or reasonably on this hyper-politicized topic with hair-trigger interest groups diametrically opposed to one another. And it's time we did. So how do we fix it? Well, El Gato Malo says, I see only one way. We have to do what the court failed to and define what a person is. It's that simple, which is to say not simple at all, because there is no objective answer that can be non-dogmatically asserted or proven. But nevertheless, we need to pick one. Now, this is a superlatively messy conversation that's not going to make a lot of very vocal people unhappy. But then these people are are happy, rather. But then these people are already unhappy, and the rest are endlessly caught up in their crossfire. So we might as well cowboy up and take a shot at actually resolving the issue for real. Contrary to a lot of ill-informed histrionics, Europe has mostly managed this by finding a a societally accepted position and establishing a notion of when life starts. So too can we. Now, Elgato Malo says, I'm not going to do that here. I almost did, but honestly, I feel like it would occlude the other point I'm trying to make, which is that we, the people, and the representatives of our society and mores must step up and shoulder this. I do not, do not want to lose that in the shouting over what the definition could be. But this needs to be our conversation, punting it to the courts as the unlucky seat in a game of hot potato and then lamenting the courts are dictating our morals to us isn't a valid or viable stance to take. That's crying to mom and then crying because she took your sister's side of the argument. You want it solved? So solve it. We need a solution that takes the real salience into account. It needs to foot and integrate with rules like manslaughter, murder, endangerment, neglect, and 20 other issues. And the only way to do that is to establish rights, who gets them, and when. A person has rights, including the right not to be killed. These are real rights. Foundational rights, which is to say negative rights, the right to be left alone, left unmolested. Now, this conflicts with other such negative rights, like self-determination, such as a woman's choice on pregnancy. But unless we're going to go back to allowing infants to be left out for wolves or parents to leave three-month-old children to starve in a crib because, well, the baby could have gone out for lunch if he was hungry, we're going to need to sort out what gets precedence. I suspect few want to grant a full Spartan-style parental latitude there. If you want to know what that was all about, read about Lycurgus. (laughs) You'll understand. Now, conversely, unless we're going to start calling having a miscarriage at 10 weeks because uh, you ran a 5K, reckless endangerment and manslaughter, some latitude would seem to be in order. And it's a big question. What duty of care does a parent owe a child and when does this start? Well, Elgato Malo says, let's be clear, this is by no means objective. Many societies, past and present, ascribe no such duty. Leaving unwanted or malformed children to die has been historically common or sometimes even socially demanded in many cultures across time. Proving objective rightness here on any given level of duty is probably impossible. The best we can do is say these are the norms and values of our society and social contract. And that brings us back to, so when is an unborn person a person, and therefore protected by this social contract as a means to determine whatever duty is owed pertains. 
Elgato Malo says we need something tangible, well-defined, and deterministic. We need a standard of person about which we can be clear and reasonably unambiguous. We need a point at which human rights accrue to an entity and pass from it as well when determining things like withdrawing life support. Now, no one is saying this is easy. But if all the howling citizens and Congress critters alike really want to solve this issue for good and for all, that's what needs doing. Politicians' self-serving signal failure to do so is what's landed us in a situation like this where one court ruling can have such seismic effects. But of course, we elected them, didn't we? We didn't hold their feet to the fire for a real solution. We let it slide and hoped the duct tape would hold or would give way or whatever your preference was. It was our abrogation of duty over 50 years that set us up for this. And so the court is right to punt this issue back at Congress, the states, and thereby at us. It should never have been decided by judges to begin with. It's neither the place nor the purview of the judiciary to establish our social norms, morals, and mores. Everything that seems like a turn toward a better orientation. By mandate, SCOTUS addresses adherence to the Constitution, defends rights, and limits the government to its enumerated power. In practice, we played the craven and encouraged it to vastly exceed this, to push what we feared to legislate. Boy, is that ever true. Let's find a judge who will make this happen for us. But it is left to we the people, not they the judges, to remake the Constitution if such remaking is in order. And Elgato Malo says, I'm not even sure the answer to this question can be legislated. To whom is such power granted, and would we want them to have it if it were? Is this an issue we want up to future majority rule and to remain a hot potato in perpetuity? Congressional diktat underwritten by a fragile majority position seems an unsound foundation on which to erect a durable right. If we have to hold a constitutional convention and write a deterministic standard in once and for all, then let's do it. But enough screwing around and avoiding the responsibility. And if you won't stop screwing around, then stop asking me to take seriously how seriously you take this issue. I won't believe you. If this is as important as everyone says it is, then let's settle it. To paraphrase the text of another truly awful ruling that's wreaked untold mischief through legislating from the bench, three generations of imbecility are enough. Now, I, by the way, would not sign on to the idea of, yep, let's have a constitutional convention once and for all, and we'll write this out and and get this thing settled. But I do think that Elgato Malo is right. Let's define what a person is, but let's do it. Let's define this at the lowest possible level instead of the one size fits all approach. I mean, for crying out loud, the hysteria over this. Hillary Clinton yesterday actually was talking about, well, you know, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, you have no idea who they're going to come for next. Where do you hear that kind of language? (laughs) Who they're going to come for next? Really? Are they coming after somebody? No. They're returning this uh, decision and this authority to make such decisions to the states and the people. But hey, you never know who they're going to come for next. I think she's a little bit worried because John Durham just got some of her papers and maybe they'll be coming for her next. One can only hope. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to thank uh, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. I really appreciate them being a sponsor. I especially appreciated uh, Teresa Alsop coming and joining me on the show the other day. If, if my demographics read correctly, and I'm not trying to excuse, exclude uh, if you're a female listener, um, but uh, generally I find that uh, my, my main audience is guys. And so I'm, I'm going to recommend guys. Uh, sewing may not be one of your interests, but if it is, that doesn't mean you're any kind of a girly man or anything. That just means you have a broad variety of interests. But if you have ever been thinking about, hey, do we need a sewing machine? I'm going to ask you, consider taking your wife to sewingandquiltingcenter.com or, you know, anybody else you want to surprise with something great and pick out a sewing machine. Because they'll not only sell you the very best machines available, and they have everything from entry-level machines up to the very top-of-the-line long-arm quilting machines, but they'll teach you how to use that machine. They'll repair those machines as they need service through the years. And, of course, they have all the supplies to go along with them. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com, located in St. George, Utah. Give them a try. You'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, two quick things here before we wrap this hour up. When you hear people complaining that the overturn of Roe v. Wade spells the end of democracy, Hillary Clinton, I'm looking your direction. Who are they going to come for next? It's not true. And Thomas L. Knapp explains why using democracy as an argument against overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't work. He says, in the wake of a leaked draft Supreme Court opinion, which, if it represents a final vote, would overturn Roe v. Wade, pro-choice advocates are marshalling their best and worst arguments against removing that ruling's protections for abortion. Now, he says, as always, I'll refrain from sharing my own opinions on abortion as such. I'm not interested in convincing anyone of anything there for no other reason that I'm not firmly convinced myself. But he says, I won't refrain from sharing my opinions on poor arguments, though both in general and on abortion specifically. They're quite possibly my top pet peeve. And he says, the worst argument I'm hearing right now is, the envelope please, overturning Roe would be undemocratic. Now he's quoting Ben Beckett, writing at Jacobin Magazine. Overturning Roe v. Wade shows the right has nothing but contempt for democracy. Ben Beckett writes, if the decision stands, it will be a high-water mark for the rights project of undemocratic rule. As the draft decision shows, the Supreme Court is arguably the most powerful weapon the right has for ruling without and against the people. End quote. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says, really? The problem isn't a matter of fundamental individual rights versus state power, but rather of democracy? He says, let's take a look at the three underlying cases. In Roe v. Wade, 1973, the Supreme Court overturned Articles 1191, 1194, and 1196 of Texas's Penal Code. Those articles in the code, and that code rather, were passed by a democratically elected state legislature. The court overturned democracy in favor of what it held was a constitutionally protected individual right. In Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992, the court further expanded its interpretation of those constitutional protections versus Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act of 1982, once again ruling against a democratically elected state legislature and in favor of a right to abortion. And in the current case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Association, 
The court will rule either for or against Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, which, you guessed it, was passed by a democratically elected state legislature. So if the draft opinion becomes an actual ruling, democratically elected state legislatures will once again make decisions on abortion law. In other words, that's the exact opposite of undemocratic. It's full-blown democracy, tiptoeing through the abortion tulips with bells on and playing a ukulele. He says those who consider a constitutional right to abortion might want to reconsider their fetishistic and, in this case, simply incorrect appeals to democracy. There's something to be said for protection of individual rights against the whim of majorities, not only on this issue. That's actually a really solid observation. All right, one final story I wanted to share with you. 2020, I think, is going to be a year that's going to be studied by historians for ages to come. Just because it was such a bizarre year. None of us, I mean, we're still pretty close to it, so we we probably don't see the forest for the trees. But it'll be interesting to see how the history books are written as, as time goes on. I like this article from Janet Levy. The real black swan event of 2020 was not the virus. She says it was the assault on small business. Janet Levy says most people believe the coronavirus was a black swan, meaning an unexpected event of large magnitude with unprecedented consequences. But Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who coined that metaphor, disagrees. Coronaviruses were well known, though the SARS-CoV-2 strain that hit humans was new. And uh, the pandemic wasn't unexpected. Experts had been warning of one, though not of the coronavirus per se, for years. In 2019, the government had conducted months-long pandemic preparation drills. Talib's annoyance is at the diminution of his coinage to a cliché. But there was, however, a real black swan event in 2020, says Carol Roth in her book, The War on Small Business. How government used the pandemic to crush the backbone of America. It was the U.S. government's reaction to the pandemic with unprecedented decisions and a lockdown that forced people to stop working and doing business for months on end. The pandemic became a pretext for politically mo- for a politically motivated campaign against small business and individuals to hasten the consolidation of power in big business, big tech. And big government. That's the hook and the weighty claim with which Ross, Roth rather begins her book. Now, Carol Roth is a recovering investment banker. And that's important because she has seen how Wall Street undermines Main Street by working with government through lobbyists and lawyers. So her book explores two big ideas. First, that the ills of capitalism, the concentration of immense wealth in a few individuals, for example, cannot be cured by central planning or more government, because the real problem is the government. Second, the more government has tried to protect us from the big, bad, wolf-esque corporations, the more powerful those corporations have grown. And this happens because central planning is all about control. A few powerful figures, reminiscent of the cliques and nomenclature of the Soviet Union, decide on everything. And since control of a few is easier, small businesses, competitive, resolute, and representing the true independent spirit of capitalism, must be broken. So the battle for power and control, Roth stresses, is the background against which readers should see her tour horizon for the impact of tour de horizon of the impact of the pandemic response. 
a well-established system of cronyism, the very antithesis of testing business ideas in the market, has been hell-bent on killing small businesses, individual rights, and ultimately freedom. It did not waste the opportunity it saw in the 15 days to flatten the curve, which dragged on to almost a year and crushed hundreds of thousands of small businesses. In fact, Roth says it ensured that government declared war on small business while doing everything to favor big business. Now, Roth points out several biased inconsistencies in lockdown rules. For instance, large corporations never shuttered. In fact, they prospered during the year. The government allowed large box retailers to remain open while smaller stores, possibly environments of lesser ineffectivity, were penalized for opening. The book reports on fighters like Shelley Luther of Dallas, Texas, who went to jail for keeping her salon open, though she maintained strict safety protocols. Driven to desperation, she and her staff had decided to work. Feeding my kids is not selfish, she told the judge. If you think the law is more important than getting kids fed, then please go ahead with your decision, but I'm not going to shut the salon. Though examples, through examples like Luther's, this book raises a lot of questions. For instance, why should a large pet store that grooms dogs be open while nail salons were ordered shut? How could businesses that sold alcohol and marijuana be declared essential? Why close houses of worship or limit the number of worshipers when more people could gather in large grocery stores? How could left-wing Antifa and BLM protests where protesters or demonstrators rather violated masking and social distancing rules and turned violent be granted permission. Why did police hold back when these protesters looted, vandalized, or set fire to small businesses? These are fair questions. I have a link to the article. You can check it out in its entirety. I hope uh, I hope it will make some sense and maybe vindicate some of the things you've already been thinking about this, but that is the true tragedy of 2020. And what's happened to small business... Well, we're, we're beginning to see some of the effects. We're beginning to reap some of the consequences. And it's not pretty. And I don't mean to end on an optimistic note, but it's probably going to get tougher before it gets better. All the more reason to own your worldview, stay informed, and be more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're against. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for people who are willing and able to engage in wrong think. You would think everybody should be able to do it, but you know what? It takes a special mindset, a willingness to walk out of step with the rest of society, and a willingness to be misunderstood, which it turns out is one of the most freeing things that can ever happen to you. So if you're okay with other people not quite sure where you stand, but you feel like truth is more important than the approval of the crowd, welcome. Come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers and, and come away more certain of who you are and what you stand for so you can step forward and make the difference that you were born to make. I want to thank my sponsors, including Dr. Ward Wagner with Dixie Chiropractic. 
I would encourage you to check out their website at DixieCairo.com and pay close attention to a couple of the intro specials that they offer. Uh, For people who are dealing with neuropathy, here's a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. If you have herniated discs or bulging discs, $99 intro special. It's two treatments plus a massage. They can also help you with car accident injuries. Basically, if you or someone you know is dealing with pain, contact Dixie Chiropractic. You can click on the website, DixieChiro.com. This will be great news for my listeners in southern Utah because they're right there in your community. Well, you know, the substack of Mary, I'm sorry, Margaret Anna Alice. Margaret Anna Alice. It's been a great resource for wrong thinkers on COVID-related issues. She especially has written some remarkable open letters to various public officials. And, and they're very, very principled, very, very well-researched. This, this is a treasure trove of information. But I'm sharing her latest essay, which is a dialogue with a curious injectee. And it's a great example not only of some very solid information on COVID-related subjects, but it's also a great example of how to respond to someone who is on the other side of an issue in such a way that uh, they will actually want to hear what you have to say, or at least not feel like, oh, you're here to beat me into submission or at least beat me into the truth. So it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard line to walk for a lot of people because, you know, if somebody's on the other side of the issue, you want to just hit them with, the, you know, the old one-two and knock them right out, and there you go. How could you not see how, how valid my point of view is? Well, this is how Mary... I'm sorry, Margaret Anna Alice approaches this. Sorry, I'm just going to keep naming girls' names until I get all, all three of them here. She starts her substack with, it happened. It finally happened. An open-minded pro-vaxxer asked a question. And in fact, she just got her Twitter account locked <laughs> because she shared this on Twitter. And apparently, you know, asking things about uh, the vaccines and, you know, getting honest answers, that's, that's enough to trigger, you know, oh, the dissent alarms, independent thought. We can't have that. Margaret Anna Alice says, something happened that I was beginning to think was as unlikely to occur as Bigfoot soaring in on a Pegasus, sliding down a rainbow, and distributing the leprechaun's gold stash to the 99%. A person who has been quadruple jabbed and believes in the safety and efficacy of the injectable gene therapy product honestly asked me a question and engaged in good faith dialogue. Now, the question came up in the comment thread of, are you a good German or a badass German? And I asked his permission to share our dialogue with you guys as I thought you could use a positive counterpoint to contentious encounters. And she actually links to a more contentious one, too. Now, he kindly granted permission, but asked that I refer to him as B in explaining, saying, I I work and live in Wokeland where even talking to the other side can get me excommunicated. So she says, without ado, here's our congenial exchange. And it starts with B, who says, don't know how I stumbled onto this substack. I'm a somewhat anti-woke, pro-free speech Democrat. I think my fellow liberals are a bit nuts about masks. Masks don't fight COVID very well, but I'm convinced that the imperfect vaccines are amazing and literally help save us from societal collapse. I'm over 50 and have taken all four shots as recommended. I didn't vote for Trump and never will, but it's great that he helped get the vaccines so fast. I think everyone should take the vaccine, and if more of us had, we might actually be out of the pandemic, but maybe not. COVID is going to COVID, 
but I trust the global medical consensus. Most of you don't. Why? He says, I'm not ideological. Trans women aren't women. Black lives have always mattered. We didn't need nightly protests about it. Free speech is the most sacred thing in our democracy. I think Elon owning Twitter would be a net good. I often listen to Joe Rogan. Just letting you know who I am before you slam me. Just honestly tell me why you think the global medical consensus is wrong. Okay, that's a pretty honest question. And before I share with you Margaret Anna Alice's answer, I just want you to consider if someone were to ask you that kind of a question, why don't you uh, go along with the global medical consensus? Would you have the wherewithal to even try and answer? Okay, I want you to hear how she approaches this. First thing she says is, I'm not going to slam you, B. I'm delighted to welcome you, and thank you for asking that question. That's all those of us who have concerns about the safety and efficacy of the injection want. The opportunity to present the scientific evidence to someone who has an open mind and the courage to ask that question. Indeed, she says, my entire blog is devoted to answering that question. So I encourage you to explore the archive. Since you are savvy to the ideological manipulations of the media, you may appreciate my first essay, which shows how the propagandists sowed a climate of fear and a vision to inculcate people to a particular narrative that would justify the shift to more authoritarian governments worldwide. She says, Dr. Mike Eden, Pfizer's former chief science officer and vice president with 32 years worth of experience in commercial research and development delineates the lies bolstering this narrative and she links to it the covid lies covid lies with former Pfizer Pfizer vice president chief scientific officer michael yeadon and then she shares other articles that she says these will address your question more directly and her letter to the california legislature letter to the washington state board of health letter to a holocaust denier letter to an agree to disagree relative and letter to a tyrant all do a marvelous job. These, are, these aren't just, you know, here's my opinion, kind of free-form association of here's why I think what I do. She actually backs everything up with really solid research and sourcing to, to back up why she says what she says. Now listen to this next part. She tells the questioner, when you say the global medical consensus, understand that you are seeing what's presented by the media as the consensus. The same media that received a billion dollars to push the vaccine, the same media that gets 70% of its advertising funding from pharmaceutical companies, 75% of their total budgets in 2020. Did you know that? Because they have been censored, deplatformed, and smeared, you are not seeing the million-plus ethical physicians, scientists, medical professionals, and independent thinkers around the globe who are questioning the narrative. Instead, you are seeing the representatives who, number one, are knowingly deceiving the public, number two, have fallen under the same mass hypnosis as the majority of the public, or number three, are consciously committing scientific fraud because their paymasters have pressured them to do so. And she gives an example of this. Profiles Encourage, Dr. Tess Lowry. She shares excerpts from a Zoom meeting in which Hill admits to intentionally altering his paper to obscure the fact that ivermectin can reduce COVID fatalities by 80%. He acknowledges this deception will kill at least 500,000 people in six weeks. Now, it's been over a year now, so that figure's probably much higher in reality, especially when combined with financially incentivized hospicide. 
and he's being pressured to do so by his sponsor, Unitaid. That's a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation vehicle that gave $40 million to the university where Dr. Hill works. And then she says, please watch this 19-minute video to see the evidence of this corruption and links to it. Now, she goes on and on here. This is, I mean, this... I'll tell you this, if you if you don't have some time to study, probably better not click on Margaret Anna Alice's Substack because her, her articles are not just, you know, short 600-word little treatments of, of this. She really goes into detail and has so many links. You could spend the better part of the weekend on just this one essay alone, and it would uh, it would take you deep into the rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm I'm scrolling through and just going, holy cow, there's, there's so much here. But the bottom line is, look at how she answered with with gentleness and with the idea of, of look, I'm, I'm not here to just beat you into submission and, and make you grovel at my feet and say, uncle. Thank you for asking in good faith. Thanks for your brave willingness to talk to the other side. You know, happy movie watching, happy research. That's the attitude we have to take. Not, I told you so, or hold still while I rub your nose in it. But show some love towards the people who are sincerely asking for an opportunity to hear what your side is. Speak the truth to them in love. And if they accept it, great. And if they don't, know you've planted a seed for some future time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not saying they're going to solve all your problems. You're not going to wake up 10 pounds lighter with bright white teeth and fresh minty breath. But I will definitely provide you with some good information and hopefully some good resources for wrong thinkers that, that can help you better own your own worldview. Because this is not about telling you what to think. It's about encouraging you to think as deeply and independently and clearly as you possibly can. And it also involves just taking a look at some, some other perspectives. And I'm not talking you have to always look at the opposite side, 180 degrees different from what you believe. No. Sometimes it's just a matter of take a slight step one direction or the other. Step over here to the side. Just just a slightly different angle. And suddenly you're seeing more about a given subject or about a given issue. I really love uh, the ability of people to to simply put it in the clearest possible context. Kent McManigle is one of those writers, and I get updates regularly from everythingvoluntary.com where I see a new essay drops from Kent McManigle, and I always want to see what's he got to say. Well, he's got a doozy for today. The antidote to the problem of growing oppression is not to go and riot in the streets and burn everything down in the name of justice in a fiery but mostly peaceful protest. No. It's to live as a problem solver instead of outsourcing all of your solutions to government. Here's how Kent McManigal puts it. He says, Joe Biden has done us a favor, one he didn't intend to do and one his supporters probably haven't noticed and wouldn't like if they did. He says, if America can survive Biden in his mentally degraded condition, then it's clear the office of the president is unnecessary to the well-being of Americans. 
Now, Ken McManigal says, I would say it is obvious this truth can be extended to the rest of the government as well, from every branch of the federal, the feral federal government down to city councils. Things that are necessary and good can be done without government. And the things only government can do aren't just unnecessary, but often are harmful. Recently, Elon Musk has shown that NASA is unnecessary for human space flight, that the Federal Aviation Administration is a threat to the future of the human species since it's doing all it can to hamper his Mars program and keep the tax slaves on Earth. Musk is working to ensure the survival of humanity while the government agencies are making themselves our enemies. It's a stark contrast. Musk is now also fighting to restore free speech while his opponents are fighting for censorship. Another contrast that puts him on the better side. Now, Kent McManigal says that doesn't mean that Elon Musk is above criticism. He's not. But Musk doesn't have the power to steal your money and throw you in a cage if you resist. And that alone makes him better than any government. He says, if you imagine something can't be done without the power to steal other people's money and in order to pay for it, the power to tax, you've been tricked. If it's necessary, it can and will be done anyway. And if not, well, it probably shouldn't be done at all. If you see something you believe needs to be done, he asks, what's stopping you from stepping up and doing it? If it's a lack of money, convince others that it's a good idea. Collect the money voluntarily to give it a try. If you can't get people to chip in, maybe the idea isn't as good as you believe it is. See, money is, if, if money isn't what's standing between a good idea and making it a reality, then he says it's probably government rules stopping you. Rules put in place to protect political cronies, to protect, to protect government monopolies, or to enrich and empower politicians. And by the way, none of that helps the people. So government is not on your side, and it's an unnecessary disease many seem unwilling to cure. Don't be like them. Be the cure. Now, I want to take this in just a, a little bit a little bit more down the rabbit hole in, in the sense that uh, when it comes to, to solving problems, a lot of people think, well, I want to solve problems, but I want to do it according to the rules, and therefore I need to go ask permission from government. Mother, may I please do this? May I do that? And this can lead to some truly ridiculous things. Case in point, um, I think about the family. I'm trying to remember where this was. I want to say it was, I want to say it was in Michigan. I, I may be remembering incorrectly, but uh, an elderly mother and father living in their home, and uh, I guess both of them became uh, crippled to the point that they couldn't freely walk, and so their son who I guess does construction, came and built a wheelchair ramp to allow them to get in and out of their home. All right, that's all fine and dandy, right? They just add a simple wheelchair ramp to the front. Um, It was all done, you know, with with his money and his tools and everything. But uh, a local zoning enforcement official or code enforcement official noticed that they had this, uh, this new wheelchair ramp on the front of their house And you can probably guess what happened from here. Government got involved. They were told you have to tear down that ramp because you didn't ask us for permission. You didn't secure the necessary permits. Now, their son was willing to go and say, look, can can you just send somebody over to inspect it? You're going to find it. Absolutely is up to code. 
and and I'm willing to pay whatever fees you guys are willing to ask, but this is literally about their mobility in and out of their house. Care to guess what happened? Come on, you you probably know. The municipality said, nope, you got to tear it down. It's not enough that you pay tribute to us. It's we have to make an example and you have to tear this down because you didn't come to us first to beg permission. Now, of course, this isn't just a, you know, a recommendation of, well, we don't like that, but I guess you'll just do what you're going to do. This is something that's backed up with fines, with jail, men with guns and badges who will come and enforce what the municipality tells them to enforce. How does that serve justice? Okay, they didn't build this on public property. They didn't take a dime of taxpayer money. In no way were the resources of the municipality or the the neighbors or anybody else being threatened or being used or being misappropriated. None of that. Why would they require them to do this? And they did. They made them tear it down. And I, I don't know what the final outcome was. If they had to reapply and, you know, just go through the whole bureaucratic rigmarole. That's the problem. When you outsource things to government and tell them, I need you to solve this. And I know there were protests at the time of people going, well, now, Brian, come on. Be honest. If they, if, What if somebody had gotten hurt? What if that wasn't up to snuff? And, and right, I can play the what-if game, too. What if they inadvertently, in trying to put together that wheelchair ramp, somehow constructed a low-yield thermonuclear device and accidentally blew up the whole neighborhood? What if, right? Sure, we can take it to ridiculous ends. But I prefer to stick within the realm of what actually happened, which was an elderly couple with mobility issues was trapped in their house by an unyielding bureaucracy and when their son came to their rescue, you know, to, to try to help them with their problem and solve their problem with no government intervention, government ended up punishing them and him. Tear down this ramp, Mr. Gorbachev, as if that was somehow in the interest of justice. So, yeah, I admit it. If, if I seem a little, Brian, you're a little cynical there about uh, about uh, municipal government. I'm, I'm cynical about the state simply because it is an agent of coercion. And there may be times where that coercion is necessary. There may be times where that could serve the function of protecting people's God-given rights. I do think that good government is possible. I know sometimes it's probably hard to, to catch that. But properly limited government is the key. And that doesn't sound properly limited to sit there and force people to tear down something that was a solution that was working perfectly well and harming no one just because, well, but we didn't see this I dotted or this T crossed in a manner in which we're accustomed. That's why I embrace agorism, which is quite simply stop living your life asking government permission. You want to braid your friend's hair, cut your son's hair? Do it. And don't go to the state and say, I need a barber license or I need a hair braiding license first. It's your freedom. Claim it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. 
Wonderful to have Spencer on the program earlier this week. And uh, and I would encourage you, take the time to click on the link. If, you, if you're a shooter, great. You know what you're looking for. High quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. It's all there from HSL Ammo. If you're brand new to the shooting sports, and especially if you live in southern Utah, get out to the range. Get out there and, and do some shooting. You will very likely encounter Spencer because I know he spends a lot of time out there and he is one of the guys who I've seen do more to help people discover the fun of the shooting sports. Just really a great mentor. You have the chance to do business with him. Please do. I think you'll be glad that you did. So you're probably still hearing a little bit about the labor shortage, right? Are you still seeing help-wanted signs or hearing from business owners? Maybe you are a business owner and wondering, why can't I get people to come and work to fill these vacancies? One of the more common manifestations that I see is where uh, there will be like at a restaurant. Please be patient with our staff. You know, we have a very limited uh, staff or it's one person trying to hold down the show or something. It can be a real challenge. And I have to wonder... Where is that, that labor force? Where, where are the people who are like, well, you know, I just, I want to work, but I can't. Do you remember how desperate people were in 2020 when all the businesses were shut down? Pepperidge Farms remembers. I remember a little stint that I was doing standing behind the counter of a, uh, of a convenience store just to help make ends meet. I mean, sometimes you, you got to do what you got to do. But right now, there is some reluctance on the part of the public to fill some of these available positions. And there could be any number of reasons. I'm looking at a recent article here from Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. The title is, Employers May Want to Stop Humiliating the Help with Mask Requirements. He says, On Monday night, a yikes-inducing photo of Hillary Clinton circulated widely on Twitter. She's shown posing maskless at the Met Gala while a masked attendant is crouched at her feet, adjusting the hem of her fancy dress. And I'm not one to uh, try to add fuel to the fire, but uh, that looks like a, uh, a black person, a black man, kneeling before her with a mask, fixing her dress. Oof, the optics on this are not very good. YouTuber Blair White tweeted, This photo should be in history books that discuss COVID regulations. Now, Dan Sanchez says, indeed, double standards around enforcement of and compliance with COVID policies and norms have been rife since the rise of the disease. As fees John Miltimore discussed back in 2020, the political elites have consistently flouted the COVID rules they wish to impose on the rest of us, in effect, creating a two-tiered lockdown culture. Even now, with lockdowns and mask mandates ended, the class divides such policies created still linger. Maybe you've noticed this. Well, diners, shoppers, and now travelers are generally free to show their faces. The workers who serve them are still required to mask up as if they're unclean or otherwise beneath the customers they serve. Sanchez says the cast distinction on stark display in that photo of Clinton and her attendant can now be seen in many places of business. Masks are becoming a mark of servitude adding embarrassment and tension to what would normally be a mutually respectful relationship between service providers and customers. And while the help is being humiliated in this way, service industry employers are struggling more than ever to find workers. The Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday 
Consumer-facing industries such as accommodation and food services, along with arts and entertainment, had the highest rate of job openings in March, according to the Labor Department. Job openings in the healthcare industry were also near record highs. Now, in such a tight market for labor, employers are using higher wages and better perks in order to compete. Service industry employers may want to consider finally lifting their vestigial masking policies as one of those perks. That may be good for hiring as well as for optics and for fairness. Dan Sanchez says it would be a step toward repairing the damage wrought on our culture by the disastrous COVID regime. I don't know, do you give thought to this? When you go places and you notice, oh, the, you know, the help is all masked up. Maybe it's because I'm very fortunate to live in, in small town America. But uh, I noticed this when I went to the bank a couple of weeks ago. And it was the first time in ages that uh, at this particular Wells Fargo branch, I had, uh, had actually seen the faces of the tellers. That was the first thing I commented on. They were asking, how are you doing? And I said, great, it's, it's wonderful to see your faces. And, and, you know, to a person, they were all like, oh, we are so relieved. We are so thankful to finally be able to take off the masks. Now, notice, I'm, I'm not trying to get you all riled up. And if you see somebody wearing a mask, you need to go tell them how stupid they are. You can think whatever you want. But I think most people are already on board with this, okay? This is not the time to, you know, to flex on them. I told you so. I told you. I was right. You were wrong. I just can't help but think that <clears throat> a very large percentage of the people who you have seen wearing masks over the last couple of years most likely were doing so uh, against their better judgment or against their their desires, you know, I referenced, you know, the time I was working, you know, in a, in a convenience store part-time helping to make ends meet. Part of the requirement was, because that started in 2020, was you got to wear a mask. I wish I could tell you, oh, yes, and I'm one of those who valiantly refused. I will never wear a mask. I never have and I never will. Great. I'm grateful for those people who can say that honestly. But the fact is I did put on the mask because that was a requirement of working. And I hated every second of it. <laughs> it sucked. The only time it wasn't such a bad thing was when I was outside in the wintertime, you know, emptying trash cans or wiping down gas pumps or whatever the case may be, sweeping the sidewalk. And that mask actually, you know, provided a little bit of uh, relief against wind chill. But not a bad idea. Businesses, if you are looking for workers, if you're having trouble getting people to sign on, this may be one of the areas where you have some flexibility. You can't hide behind, well, you know, the government says we have to do this or else. That's been struck down. But I think most importantly, the, the lesson I'm taking away from this is it stopped when enough people simply said, we're done. And then did you notice how the science changed? Did you notice how everybody just, oh, well, hey, look, uh, why in uh, retrospect, I guess, uh, looks like the science will now accommodate this change. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. This just like these politicians tried to, or these bureaucrats tried to find a parade to start marching in front of. I'll tell you this, my line in the sand about wearing masks, it's a lot more firm than it once was. Found myself in a courtroom last week, for instance, 
And as we were waiting to go into that, it was for a happy thing. I guess I can share this with you. Uh, my, my wife and I adopted our 16-year-old son. We've, we've been his guardians for 16 and a half years, and uh, we finally adopted him. And as we're waiting to go into the courtroom, here came one of the court personnel, one of the bailiffs or marshals or somebody came and put a sign on this chair out in the hall, this courtroom requires masks or uh, you must wear a mask to enter this courtroom. And I was like, oh, crap. This has been such a perfect day otherwise. And fortunately, the the guy who put the sign up stopped and told everybody, uh, when Judge so-and-so is in the courtroom, um, he insists that everybody wear masks. Fortunately, that's not the judge that we were were working with. And so we were able to work with the other judge. He did not insist on masks. I went ahead and went into the courtroom unmasked just in case. And I wasn't going to ask, you know, hey, do you want me to put on a mask? It was just like, no, long as I can get away with this, (laughs) I'm not going to put one on. And thankfully, you know, I mean, my wife, being a good person, she asked the judge as we sat down, you know, do you want us to put on a mask? And he said, it's your choice. And I was like, yes. This is how it should be. So I don't know. Maybe this maybe this makes me a bad person. Why are you so resentful about putting on masks? But it's, you know, there's I have some very deep-seated uh, resentment over not just me, but everybody who was forced to do that. And so I'm pretty resolved it's not going to happen again. So employers, take heed when Dan Sanchez says maybe you should take away the mask requirements. It's not a bad thing. And the more I look around, I don't, I don't follow a lot of, you know, I don't follow the award shows, so I couldn't tell you about who was on the red carpet for this, you know, uh, this award show or that. I didn't follow, you know, a lot of the, the political stuff, the Washington, uh, the White House correspondence dinner and so forth. I just don't hang on those kind of stories. But it is really disturbing. When you do see images that are, that are taken from these events, 99% of the time, the, mask are the, the masks are being worn by the people who are in positions of subservience. And it just seems like that's the, the future that we are being groomed to accept. Well, there are some people who are more equal than others. I mean, this is right out of Animal Farm. And those who are not as equal as others, well, you have to wear the masks because we tell you so. Yeah, I'm, I'm not inclined to go along with that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for making this show a part of your day. I don't care where you are in your quest for truth. If you find yourself trying to work your way out of the swamp of misinformation... Let me, let me qualify. The swamp of official misinformation, since that seems to be the, the uh, growth industry these days. I congratulate you, and it doesn't matter. If we're, if we're in different places, different vantage points, I'm not going to insist that, well, you have to do what I say because I see farther and I know best. We're all somewhere in that journey. And if anything, we just have a duty to help those who are a few steps behind have some trail markers so that they can find their way out of the swamp and into the light of truth. That's all I'm trying to do. I know there are there are those who thought, well, I thought you were into, you know, trying to trying to do something a little more nefarious. Well, okay. Truth be told, I do have this ulterior motive that uh, eventually I would like to overthrow the world and see it replaced with the kingdom of God. But you know, 
I'm kind of I'm kind of uh, following God's lead on that one, and I'm sure He will make that happen in His own way and in His own time. In the meantime, I just want to want to speak the truth and encourage people to seek the truth. And it's getting harder than ever. And you know, it's not just free speech that's causing contention in our society today. Well, you free speech absolutist, as our our new misinformation Sarina uh, might put it. It's an active crusade against the truth itself. In fact, I've got an article here from, uh, let me get the name right here, Albin Sadar, What the Left Hates Most. Subtitle, it should be obvious to all of us by now, if we want to save democracy, we need more free speech to uncover the truth, not less. So Albin Sadar Sadar says, When I graduated from college in the mid-1970s with a degree in speech, theater, and communication, I remember telling a friend that I thought the one thing liberals hated most was free speech. Now, some 45 years later, we're all finding out that the left has gone far beyond just hating free speech to an unabashed hatred of truth itself. Now, of course, there are some who might say, along with Pontius Pilate, well, what is truth? But that's the very point of free speech. The worthwhile and educational idea of debate clubs, popular when I was in high school and college, was that a student or team of students would take one side of an issue, say, the First Amendment is, an essential, is essential to true freedom in America. And another student or group would argue for the opposite idea. In other words, that freedom can exist and even thrive and expand far better without free speech. If we heard both sides of a proposition, the argument went, we could decide for ourselves which proposal was the better of the two, or even if one was outright destructive. But just as those on the left have ended the debate on global warming, calling it settled science, the debate on anything at all is now considered settled. And if you even attempt to disagree, you will be canceled and shamed into silence. And eventually, if you continue to persist in challenging the official state narrative, something worse may be coming your way. So it's not without coincidence that the new Disinformation Governance Board, under the auspices of the Department of Homeland Security, I guess we should just start calling it the DGB. It's kind of like the KGB, only... It's our our own unique slant. (laughs) The uh, DGB from Homeland Security has come into existence just days before the release of a powerful new evidence-soaked film, 2,000 Mules, produced by the Salem Media Group. Building upon research by General Mike Flynn and Patrick Byrne at AmericaProject.com, 2,000 Mules provides GPS cell phone data and security camera footage of mules in the act of stuffing ballot boxes in the wee hours of multiple mornings. And not just a few dozen ballots here, a few dozen there. We're talking about thousands upon thousands, amounting to hundreds of thousands of ballots across the crucial swing states during the 2020 election. Now, these facts that focus on the legitimacy of the 2020 election need to be finally examined in the light of day. With no more squelching of viewpoints opposing the current, questionably legitimate administration's settled view of things. I mean, the left has told us 2020 was the most secure election in history. So they should be very confident about winning the debate about the legitimacy of the 2020 election. I mean, weren't we told by the press on an almost daily basis that it was Trump who suppressed freedom of the press during his administration? So by that logic, this all-new ministry of truth sounds more like a Trump idea than the work of a pure and righteous Democratic Party. Or is the opposite true? 
Has the left been labeling as anti-democracy those who disagree with them by using democracy-killing tactics? Imagine that. The same group of lefties that lied about the efficacy of masks and vaccine treatments to combat COVID, who lied about the authenticity of Hunter Biden's laptop, who lied about Donald Trump's Russia connection, this same group of bold-faced liars also lied about the 2020 election. Albin Sadar says it should be obvious to all of us by now. If you want to save democracy, we need more free speech to uncover the truth. Not less. And boy, there's, there's a lot of uh, pressure being brought to bear right now about you do not question the 2020 election. Why not? I mean, anytime someone lays down the law and says, you absolutely may not question this, you have to put this above reality. That is never what someone who is in a position of strength would do. In fact, people who are in in a true position of strength, they're the ones who are going to be okay with being misunderstood. Not because it's fun to be misunderstood or not because, you know, it doesn't hurt, but simply because when the truth is on your side, you've already won the toughest battle. On the other hand, I look at uh, the histrionics and the the absolute to panic when someone tries to question what happened in the 2020 election. We're not and I'm I'm not just seeing this from the left either. I mean, there are plenty of people on the right and I I don't know what it is. You know, if it's just that they just didn't like Trump that much, I get it. There's some people who found him very off-putting and and it's usually it's younger people on the right who tend to be more now the debunked claims that the the 2020 election had anything, you know, even the least bit questionable. Well, that's not the same thing as saying, oh, I know for a fact that there was fraud. Although there does appear to be some pretty strong evidence that something very hinky was going on. And and there has been this question all along. What's alarming to me, though, and this is to me, this is the, the tell that says, okay, we have smoke. There is fire somewhere. It's the fact that you are not supposed to even question this. You aren't even supposed to think about it. Why not? Again, if you were dealing from a a position of strength, if truth was really on your side, you would think that the people who want to maintain this was the most uh, honest and above board and secure election in history would just be salivating at the opportunity to, to welcome debate. Go ahead, throw whatever you want to throw at us. Ask whatever questions you want to ask because they would be confident that we can show you chapter and verse why what you're saying is not true. But what are we supposed to think when they say you're not even supposed to question it? You're not allowed to even hint that something might have been, you know, unusual. You know, and this is to say nothing of, of what the actual results have been and what uh, what is actually being done to our nation and to, to the world, for that matter, as a result of those secure and perfectly honest, you know, election results. I guess I got to be perfectly honest here. I don't think Trump is the answer to our prayers. He's probably in a fairly decent position, you know, going into the 2024 presidential election, assuming that uh, the left isn't able to come up with some reason to, you know, criminally indict him and either kill him or put him in prison. But I think that uh, 
Trump carries some pretty serious baggage. I'm not looking at any political savior, but I think that uh, the GOP would probably be wise to look at somebody like Ron DeSantis from Florida as as the, the new face of principled advocacy for limited government, constitution, the, the Constitution, personal freedom, free markets, etc. It's not to say Trump couldn't do it. I'm just saying that... Uh, even on the right, there are some people who find him a, a little bit abrasive. Maybe a lot abrasive. Well, that's a feature, not a bug. Okay, I get it. But above all, I guess I've, I've got to emphasize, don't look to politics. Don't look to personalities in politics to come and save you. They can't. The system itself is corrupt enough and is, is thoroughly compromised. It's not going to fix itself. At this point, I really think the best thing we can do is focus on building what comes next. That's going to happen a lot closer to you than, than what's going on in the Washington, D.C. Beltway. So, I don't mean to rob you of, you know, things that you find entertaining or informative, but if most of the news you're watching is about what's going on in Washington and the melodrama playing out there, you're probably missing some good opportunities to change the world for the better right where you are standing. Maybe consider doing something there. This is The Brian Hyde Show.